0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com.
1: Now, without
0: further ado... The person who opened Names Not Numbers for us yesterday and has in the intervening period been to Washington and back and probably somewhere else and back is Gillian Tett, who uh, is the head of all things editorial here for the Financial Times in the US. And without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Gillian who is going to introduce our remarkable next guest. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Julia. Well- Lots of people in recent years have speculated about the role of the individual in politics, in government, in the White House, in the military, um, because certainly the collision between individual duty and conscience and state apparatus is perhaps more, more pointed now than ever before. But although plenty of people have speculated about this without actually knowing very much, journalists included, I'm joined this afternoon by somebody who really does know these issues because he's lived it at the coalface for many, many years. P.J. Crowley was in the Air Force for 26 years, I believe, um, serving in a variety of different roles. Um, Most recently, he was former United States Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs which perhaps he can explain to us exactly what that entails. But most immediately of all, or the thing that has perhaps propelled him most visibly into the public eye was the fact that he resigned earlier this year over the issue of David Manning, the former army private who leaked or was or accused of having provided the wherewithal for WikiLeaks to get hold of its infamous cables. Um, Now, that's a complicated story. It raises many, many moral and political issues. It provides a a very good starting point from which to begin our discussion. So perhaps I can start by asking you, um, tell us exactly what happened earlier this year and why you decided to resign from the government over the issue of David Manning and the whole WikiLeaks saga.
2: Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Um, and I I certainly can... uh, can attest to the fact that standing at a State Department podium uh, for the past two years until uh, March of this year, um, I sat at the confluence of old media and new media, uh, which certainly um, provide the opportunity for any individual, whether in government or uh, in uh, ordinary citizen, to have a voice in you know, current affairs. Uh, when I came to the State Department, um, my young staff convinced me to begin tweeting. Um, I said, to do what? (laughs) Uh, 33,000 followers later, FT yesterday uh, had me on a list of uh, the top 100 uh, foreign policy Twitterati in the United States under the category of a recovering US government official.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And did you do your own tweets or did someone else do them for you? I do
2: all my own tweets.
0: Um, Not too grand to tweet yourself.
2: uh, But I think that's, that's on the one hand, that is what we're seeing remarkably in this Arab Spring, that you have individuals uh, in countries from Tunisia to Egypt uh, to Yemen to today, Syria, who are standing up and demanding better of their governments, and now they have additional tools uh, that allow them to organize to create leverage on governments and to actually, you know, change government and government policy. And and this is, uh, I I don't think, there's a debate within media circles. Malcolm Gladwell in the New Yorker last fall was famously saying that the revolution will not be tweeted. Uh, He's right and he's wrong. Um, It is the combination of new media together with traditional media that create the force and, and the power uh, in this information age for individuals to really have an impact on, uh, uh, on their environment. Now, that happens in the context of Arab Spring. It also happens in the context of WikiLeaks uh, and, uh, and uh, Bradley Manning. Uh, at the podium I always was governed by what I, th- I call our strategic narrative. Uh, what does the United States stand for and how do we apply our interests and our values to day-to-day policy. Um, what is unique about WikiLeaks is, I mean, we've, we've, we know what a whistleblower is. Daniel Ellsberg is probably a great example of a classic whistleblower, uh, somebody who had knowledge about an issue, had concerns about government policy, and decided that the only recourse that he had was to reveal information, classified information, with the hope of, of changing policy. WikiLeaks is a different phenomenon because it combines that individual motivation but with technology uh, that has a much more profound effect. I would not characterize WikiLeaks as whistleblowing because unlike, say, uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, the WikiLeaks revelations, the release of 250,000 documents, many of them classified, touched on every relationship that the United States had with Virtually every country around the world. So to call that whistleblowing, uh, I was on a panel in New York at Columbia a few weeks ago, and someone wanted to use the, someone tried to use the term industrial whistleblowing, which I think is an inherent contradiction. Uh, but to believe that WikiLeaks was about whistleblowing is to suggest that the United States policy towards every country everywhere in the world is wrong. I don't believe that to be. Uh, the the case. But while I thought that the prosecution of Bradley Manning was very important uh, because ultimately if if the charges are proven he has violated his oath of office to protect uh, classified information and the interests of the United States but I thought that the treatment of Bradley Manning uh, had undermined the credibility and legitimacy of an otherwise necessary step by government to protect information Uh, that is classified, and so I spoke out uh, at a session at MIT, and and, uh, to even today, stand by what I said.
0: I mean, that was very brave of you in many ways, not least because, as you say, your position was somewhat complex. I mean, just to make this absolutely clear to the audience, you basically don't like WikiLeaks, do you? Hmm? You don't like WikiLeaks, do you?
2: Uh, Do I like WikiLeaks? No.
0: Okay. So would, would you shut them down if you could?
2: Well, you can't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hypo- okay hypothetical world where you are God and master of all others. Of no, I,
2: I mean I, under, I You know, certainly there there are multiple dimensions to WikiLeaks. There is the role that uh, the news media played, the traditional media, the New York Times, the Guardian, El Pais, uh, and others. Uh, that is a vitally important role uh, to the uh, formation and sustainment of a civil society. When you look around the world and uh, determine which countries are actually functioning in the interest of their people, uh, those countries tend to have a free and vibrant press. If you're, uh, The more autocratic countries that you have are the ones that suppress uh, and intimidate, and in some cases injure and kill journalists who are trying to expose corruption and wrongdoing in the day-to-day execution of government. So I, you know the, w- the media role in this uh, is clear and is vitally important to Uh, to democracy and civil society. Uh, That's why I focus more attention on those in government who have a responsibility to protect information, and that's why uh, the prosecution is vitally important. However, until the government proves its case in an open court of law, any suspect in the United States in a civilian or uh, military judicial system is is subject to the presumption of of innocence and subject to fair treatment until that day in court arrives.
0: Well, I must say, it's it's a subtle position to have, particularly in the media where people tend to be either for something or against something, and the idea of actually saying, this man, Bradley Manning, I think was wrong to do what he did, but must still be treated decently, and I feel that so strongly, I'm going to resign my job, to many people would seem a remarkable step to take. Was it it something that you planned to do, or was it spur of the (laughs) moment... A few words slipped out of your speech.
2: Well, no, I I was asked a very specific question uh, by a researcher at MIT. Why are you torturing Bradley Manning? And my answer was, we're not, but I understand why you asked that question. Uh, I thought that um, uh, it merited a honest answer, and I provided one. I didn't necessarily provide that answer. Uh, I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that having said what I said, along with others inside government who have been pressing the Pentagon to... Changed Bradley Manning's uh, uh, status. He was in a military brig in Quantico, Virginia. He's now in uh, uh, a facility in uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, that is much more suited to pretrial confinement. He is, has access to other prisoners. He's no longer in solitary confinement. He's no longer required to sleep naked at night. I think that is far more consistent with our interests and our values. Um, uh, but uh, given that. Uh, Um, you know, the response and the controversy that it created within the administration, I took the step of resigning. Right.
0: I mean, if you were talking to somebody today, um, you know, I mean, most government institutions, most um, institutions in New York are filled with interns right now who are trying to work out what kind of career path they're going to follow in the future. If you were talking to an intern, if you were talking to one of your own grandchildren, nephews, nieces and things who are saying, is it worth going into government today? And if I go into government in America, should I be willing to hang on to my own individual moral conscience or should I suppress it? What would you advise them?
2: Well, I've I've had um, three commissions during the course of my 30-year government career, a military commission and then two uh, commissions as appointed officials or in one case a confirmed official before the United States Senate. And in each of those cases, the commission says to serve the Uh, interests of the United States and at any particular time anyone within government uh, if they believe a policy to be wrong is to work within the system uh, to change that policy and if one cannot work uh, within the system to change that policy and cannot defend that policy then uh, is probably duty bound uh, to to resign Uh, but I think it's it's important to come back to this concept of uh, strategic narrative we (laughs) Um, I mean, what, Julian Assange has suggested that the United States has too many secrets. It may be true, although I think for those of you in New York, given uh, a certain case involving a certain comprom- uh, congressman here in New York, you might think that, you know, there are some things that just um, should stay undercover. <laughs> um, I mean, we, we are a very transparent society. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I mean, even take... Uh, you know, President Obama, who scheduled a late night, uh, you know, press uh, availability to announce a dramatic event, uh, the death of Osama bin Laden, he was scooped on Twitter, you know, 45 minutes before he stepped to a, a podium. Um, I, I do believe that as a country, uh, we know a lot about government and, and through uh, the media and exercises that I went through for two years as the State Department spokesman, we are held to account day in and day out. That said, there are things that should remain secret. The Bin Laden raid is probably a perfect example of that. Uh, and and there, there are processes underway, and we probably need to improve those processes to be more responsive, uh, to reveal as much information as can be revealed, uh, not to hold on to secrets quite as long as we did Obviously, the other day, the Pentagon Papers were finally declassified 40 years after they were released to the the New York Times. So there are some things that we can do, but any successful entity needs secrets, whether you're a government, whether you're Google. In in Julian Assange's world, if there are no secrets, then Google does not have a a secret algorithm, or Coca-Cola does not have a secret formula. Uh, But uh, in those cases where... Um, one believes that information should be revealed to the public. I I would think you have to have the expertise to be able to evaluate, you know, uh, the impact of that. And and that's where WikiLeaks is... is The the danger to WikiLeaks is less about the United States. Uh, Julian Assange said that he was empowering people, activists around the world through the release of this information. In many respects, he was putting them in danger. If you were uh, someone in China you were someone in Iran, you were someone in in Burma, uh, and your name was now on a classified cable that was sent to Washington to help inform uh, the foreign policy of the United States, Uh, your life may well be, or your career may well be in danger because uh, your your name, uh, whether it appeared in the the, uh, Guardian or the New York Times, uh, any security service worth its salt now has all 250,000 cables that have migrated from a classified network to an unclassified network, whether these cables ever are published in the uh, newspapers or not. That's the danger, that, and we have to find a way to continue to release as much information as possible, but protect uh, the information that, is, that uh, needs to remain classified. In most cases, it's less about the information, it's more about the source of that information Uh, the intelligence source that you do want to protect as a country because that helps make sure that we have informed foreign policies going forward.
0: So, I mean, what do you think the White House, what do you think the State Department needs to do now to try and cope with this tidal wave of information in practical terms? I mean, would you stop government officials from tweeting? Would you prosecute... Newspapers that handle WikiLeaks material, would you raise the bar on leaking of material even higher to try and deter future Bradley Mannings? I mean, how would you try and create a more rational information um, ecosystem?
2: Actually, I I think as institutions, whether you're talking about government or you're talking about the private sector, um, institutions need to communicate more, not less, I think the, the the impact of what we're seeing in terms of the of, of the flow of information and the development of technology is um, uh, that public opinion is going to become far more important to institutions, whether you're a government or a company, uh, and you're going to have to be in this conversation to a far greater degree. So I would say that diplomats need to tweet more, not less. Now that's uh, that's a process that is that the State Department is sorting through. It's a very traditional, high-bound, conservative uh, institution. Uh, but we are going to have to become more aggressive because people on the other end of this conversation now have the ability to engage themselves much more directly. I would tweet out things periodically, and within 15 minutes I would get some feedback from Egypt or Libya. You know, I sent out a tweet once, um, on the environment, and I got a message back from someone in Libya. It's nice to hear your environmental consciousness, but we're getting killed here in Libya. Will you do something about it? <laughs> it's a very sobering message back. Um, so I, I do think that, uh, you know, the, the, the network that helped to bring down Hosni Mubarak, uh, a, a Twitter network, if you will, most of the people that were engaged in that dynamic, the United States government did not, had not met before. Uh, so these are, these are now committed, networked activists who have, are acquiring leverage uh, and impact that they've not had before, and we are going to have to find ways to deal with them uh, you know, much more assertively, understand who they are, understand what they think, uh, and find ways to factor that into uh, our policymaking process. And that will compress the ability of institutions and governments uh, how, how much time they have to synthesize what's happening and then respond in, in real time. You're, and you're seeing that to some extent in the Arab Spring where uh, the, since the United States can't control what's happening uh, in the region, it's, it's struggling to keep up with the pace of events as things develop, whether it's Egypt or Syria or Yemen or other countries.
0: I'm going to open the um, debate up to questions in the audience in a second. But before I do, just one quick thing I want to ask you very quickly. Um, what was the hardest question you ever got asked at the State Department?
2: <laughs> well, the, uh, the most troublesome question I ever let me, let me turn that a little bit. Um, about
0: a year or so ago,
2: back. a Friday afternoon. It was Good Friday. So if you're Catholic, the church says you're not supposed to speak between 12 and 3. I should have taken the church's advice. Uh, the last question of the briefing on Good Friday was, um, Mr. Crowley, what is the United States government's position on the fact that Muammar Gaddafi just declared jihad against Switzerland. Now, my book contained 20 to 25 subjects. Jihad guidance was not there. (laughs) So, drawing upon my uh, experience uh, with uh, Colonel Gaddafi, uh, here in New York about six months earlier, he had given a truly incomprehensible speech at the United Nations. He commented on virtually everything that was happening in the world, including the Kennedy assassination. So my response was, well, like his speech, um, a lot of words but not a lot of sense. The Wall Street Journal thought it was a great answer. I thought it was a great answer. Muammar Gaddafi, who had become a reader of my briefing transcripts, not so much. (laughs) Um, So he froze billions of dollars in oil deals until I went to see the Libyan ambassador and and, uh, then issued a public statement that made clear I wasn't attacking him personally. Now, fast forward 15 months, the fact that we're now uh, uh, throwing bombs at him and not barbs at him, I feel redeemed. And did you you tweet? Uh, hmm? Did you tweet on it? Oh, I I, you know now I I am the um, in, in 2010 I was named by Chuck Todd and Savannah Guthrie as having the tweet of the year. I beat out Snooki and Sarah Palin for the, for the privilege <laughs> after Jimmy Carter went to North Korea. Now, North Korea is on Twitter for reasons which are unclear. <laughs> um, but I, I tweeted out, uh, Americans need to pay attention to our travel warnings and avoid North Korea. After all, we only have so many former presidents.
0: <laughs> right, we got a lot of questions.
2: Derek
1: Watts. Um, could you just confirm, because uh, the five newspapers that took WikiLeaks, the legal companies representing the five newspapers, redacted anything that was dangerous before they printed? Could you, uh, is that true or not? And secondly, is it your they redacted experience?
2: many things that uh, th- they redacted names? Um, as that, we had a conversation with several newspapers, and and to the extent that we could, we would signal to them if there were names. Uh, in cables, right, which, right. if posted on their websites, okay. would create sure. particular concern about the safety of those individuals. My que- for the, my most, quest- for okay. the most part, the media were very responsive yep. uh, to those requests.
1: My, my real question is, now in Britain, if you want to email a Secretary of State, he no longer has a private email or a public email address. It now goes into the centre. None of the ministers now will take private citizens' emails. And so you never get an answer. If you try number 10, you never get an answer. So on the one hand, you've got this experience of Twittering and, oh yeah, I'm new man and I'm new woman and so on, but actually it's becoming more secret and harder. Do you find that that's the case here?
2: I actually don't. Um, Hillary Clinton uh, was one of the most well-known and respected women on earth before she became Secretary of State. She charged the State Department with finding ways to engage not just governments but moving past governments to have conversations with real people and she has done that uh, leading by example. Every trip that she makes to a foreign country, time allowing, she will have a town hall um, with uh, some sort of media celebrity to be able to have a conversation Uh, and in many cases people would say to her, I don't like what you just said, I don't like your policies, but you're talking to us in ways that our leaders don't talk to us. That was certainly the case in a country like Pakistan, where we have profound challenges in our relationship with Pakistan, but they respect the dialogue that has begun, and that has helped uh, sustain us through a a very difficult uh, last few weeks since the death of bin Laden. But that is something that I think we have to find ways to do uh, more significantly going forward um, because they're, they're, as we've seen in countries like Egypt, there's a dynamic going on and we can either be uh, understanding that dynamic and participating in that or we can be on the sidelines and watching uh, things, events unfold and, and trying hard to catch up. And that's where we are today.
0: Right. We have, I think, about five minutes and about three questions, which makes like, my math not very good, but about... One and a half minutes each. So why don't we take all three questions come comments and then wrap them up, up, wrap them up into a single concluding flourish? <laughs> would, you rather, would you rather do it separate? Well, anyway. Uh, Theresa Wise, um, I've been interested that at this conference, um, a lot of people have used the Arab Spring as an example where um, new media has played a huge role. I've done a bit of work in the region, and whereas Al Jazeera will get to most of the population by TV, not that many people are actually online as a proportion. Um, And I wondered, you you yourself mentioned that it had a big role to play in in the Arab Spring. Uh, Is it because all the activists are connected? Because certainly the vast majority of the population isn't.
2: Um, It's a very good question. I I would say these are real revolutions. They're not Twitter revolutions. They're not Wiki revolutions. They're real revolutions. Uh, However, the, the social media have given them an additional tool which, together with others has helped them uh, transform. But, you know, in Egypt, for example, it was that picture in Tahrir Square, so it was the combination of of social media, well, start with Tunisia. Social media actually took the the tragedy involving the fruit vendor and allowed it to jump borders, which then created the same dynamic in other countries that began uh, in Tunisia. Um, But it was the combination of social media which gave them additional skills to organize, together with uh, new media that then made it a national or international story uh, that forced governments uh, to respond in the way they, ways they did. And once the Egyptian me- military, for example, made clear they were not going to forcibly remove those people from Tahrir Square, uh, the Mubarak government in, uh, inevitably was going to, to fail.
1: Hi, I'm Janet Goldsmith. You resigned over a very specific um, issue, which was, and you said, and I agree, you know, the, if he was proved to have leaked all the information to WikiLeaks, then um, he was breaking his oath, but it was actually over our treatment and breaking our own laws or our own moral code um, that concerned you. And that could also be said about Guantanamo, for instance, has been said about um, torture or whatever euphemism we use for torture these days. Um, is this something that you think is out of control now in the government Um, Is it pockets? Is there anybody in charge of this, in your view? Is it running amok?
2: Well, no. Go back to the concept of strategic narrative. I think that what the United States needs to do better is understand the impact of public opinion and understand the gap between what we think we're doing. Um, And and I I do believe that government officials have the best of intentions. Uh, However, what what we're doing has a much different impact or much different perception uh, somewhere else. We went to Iraq thinking we were going to be liberators, and the Iraqis said, you're occupiers. Uh, And we have to be much more uh, attuned uh, and and factor public opinion around the world much more significantly into our policymaking process uh, than we have in the past. We are still a superpower, but we're a very naive uh, superpower, and I don't think we really have factored in that public diplomacy aspect to the degree that we need to uh, going forward.
1: But is it just the public opinion aspect or is it the means to the end aspect? No,
2: but it's also, you you, you raised Guantanamo. I mean, I I, I would love to see Khalid Sheikh Mohammed come here to Manhattan and be in the southern district of of, uh, Manhattan and have an open trial. I I think that it was hard for me to stand at a podium and point a finger at China and Russia for the lack of transparency in their legal processes when we have uh, a process that is untested relative to the successful prosecutions that we've had here in New York uh, and uh, and in Washington, uh, so I, I don't think we take into account the impact in terms of of this narrative uh, that uh, around the world, because we see things differently and perhaps you know through a uh, uh, you know through a, uh, a narrow lens compared to how others view us and our impact on the world.
1: Eileen Felder is my name. I actually began my career in public diplomacy at the former USIA, U.S. US Information Agency in the Latin American markets. And I just wonder when the decision was taken to fold USIA back into the State Department and really sever that public diplomacy apparatus that we had, and the ability to tell our story to the world in a way that was independent of our embassies if we really lost an advantage in terms of dealing with public information, expressing the government point of view, and also being able to take on some of the more sensitive or uh, questions and answers, as well as the ability to deal with, with leaks. Uh,
2: I mean... The
0: State Department become too powerful. Did
2: you become too powerful? Well, um, Gillian may have an opinion here as well. Uh, I mean, thank you for your service, and I would say that USAA played a major role in the success during the Cold War. Uh, ultimately, uh, the symbols worked to our advantage. We were able to communicate you know, through the media of the time and, and ultimately helped the Soviet Union and communism implode from its own internal contradictions. But that was then. Um, now it is a matter that is still being debated, but I, I think that we have to deal with the communications environment that exists today. I mean, we, we, we were opposing a superpower that was very plotting, very controlling, and there weren't that many channels of communication. Today, while it may be true that uh, you can't do everything in, a, in, a, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the private communication world that you could with the channels that you control, but you've got to go where the audiences are. The audiences in a critical region like the Middle East are watching Al Jazeera. Uh, They're they're not watching Al Hura, which is the US equivalent. Uh, Now, I think there is still a role for the BBC, there's still a role for uh, VOA, uh, but but we have to get better at communicating in, through channels that the people around the world are attuned to, listening to, uh, and trust. Uh, and we have to do a combination of, of those things to be successful. So while it worked during the Cold War because of the relatively limited you know, communication environment that existed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that communication environment now is much more vast. Uh, we should be in that space. We're doing very creative things in terms of communicating in strategic languages. So we're not we're communicating English, but we're also we're tweeting in. Uh, Farsi and Urdu and Chinese and Japanese and that's having an impact But we've got to go where the audiences are to make sure that they have the perspective that we want them to have uh, About the American people and our policy but at the same time we have to be much more much better listeners to be able to understand that While we have a perspective they do too and the truth as always is probably somewhere in the middle
0: Well, I can see lots of more people who'd like to ask questions. We are sadly out of time we could have gone on probably for twice as long. But thank you very much indeed for such an insightful and honest and interesting. Thank you.